is a world of shadow and darkness. She's worth five grand a week, man. Put her on the streets. A world we never see. We have a 14-year-old brought in last night. Been in town 72 hours. Gang raped, abandoned. A realm of secret appetites and hidden passions. If she wasn't enjoying it, why didn't she cry for help? Because of shame. A realm where nothing is taboo. It was Duke who put you out on the street. He made you turn tricks. Duke was good to me. Charles Bronson. Everybody on the floor, now! Kinjite, forbidden subjects. Fumiko is our daughter, and she's just a young girl. It is different in Japan. A daughter like Fumiko-san would be an innocent. I can imagine how that guy must feel, being the father of a teenager. Hi, Daddy. Would you rather she were in the back seat of a car somewhere? Rita's your daughter. She's not your wife. Every desire becomes obsession. Somebody cops a feel off Rita on the bus, and you're behaving like she was raped or something. And every obsession explodes into violence. <laughs> this feeling of revenge that's eating my gut. We're all beset with demons. Every one of us. You make a living selling little kids, I'm gonna put you out of business. Charles Bronson. That's justice. Kinjite, forbidden subjects. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? My fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another sleazy, and by sleazy, I mean sleaziest <laughs> installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 325, Kinjite Forbidden Subjects. Folks. <laughs> yeah, I know this has been a show that has occasionally touched on risque topics, but this is probably the most outright offensive movie we've ever done. Probably. It's definitely in contention. Yeah. The Stone Age is, but it, that mostly seems harmless in comparison. Sure, sure yeah. <laughs> this movie is so amoral. Yeah, nothing really redeeming here. Racist, sleazy, remorseless in its trash. Totally. This is the literal definition of One Trashy Summer, which we are now well approaching into. halfway through. Yeah. And we're finally doing something that's true. legitimately trash. True to form. I'm not even 100% sure I would say I like this movie. I'm entertained by it because it's mm -hmm. so sleazy that it's funny. And you can kind of take a certain joy from some of this stuff because it's just so yeah, that's how I feel heartless about and soulless. Most of these, they're fun to watch, even though they're so messed up and weird. Yeah, but 
when you say these, okay, though, yeah, you're like you're not. This is not. This is a different level. I've seen movies yeah. like this before. In fact, they made a lot after Dirty Harry for about twenty years. It's its own mm-hmm. brand of subgenre. Yeah, sleazy cop movies, basically. Okay, yeah. In fact, James Woods was in a movie called Cop. He seems like probably around yeah. this time. It would have been late '80s that I watched last year, I think, which is also kind of like this. Yeah. Not as bad. The subject matter is not as dark. This is as dark as it gets. Really. Absolutely. And they don't seem to really have even the first hint of gravitas when no. approaching this Just subject like, matter. This is normal. <laughs> this is everyday life. You know what this movie is? What? This movie is the reality mm-hmm. that Fox News has been trying to convince our parents oh, yeah. out there in the world that this is how the world really is. That's what launched that broadcasting system. This is basically a movie that Tucker Carlson would jack off to. Oh, God. <laughs> it's got everything from that perspective that you would want. This fantasy land that all minorities are terrible and the world is going to grab your daughter and corrupt her in a remorseless fashion and society is powerless to stop them and the cops have to take the law into their own hands to get anything done. (laughs) This movie's insane, but we'll get into it. Folks, it's One Trashy Summer. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please send us an email, greatestpod at gmail.com. We'd love to read your email on the show. We'll be reading one later and in as many episodes as we can. So please send them in. If you'd like a sticker or have a listener request, you can reach us through Twitter and email and we'll work that out. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. The movie we've been talking about, Kanjite, Forbidden Subjects, was released in 1989. It was directed by J. Lee Thompson, written by Harold Nebenzal. Although credited as the sole writer, Harold Nebenzal's script was rewritten before filming by producer Poncho Cochner and director J. Lee Thompson. Hmm. to make the material more like a Charles Bronson movie, and it is oh, certainly. very much in that Death Wish mold. What we'll does get... that mean, to make it more Charles? Like, what do they have to do to the script? <laughs> Less action. Less <laughs> actually doing anything. Less dialogue from Bronson specifically. Probably, yeah. Like, let's tighten this up. Two or three word sentences at all times. The original script was a police drama with minimal action, so I guess they added those big set pieces especially the ending which is insane (laughs) (laughs) minimal action minimal energy from bronson minimal redeeming qualities the budget five million the box office was 3.4 million so it was not a hit (laughs) although what is what does one expect for this type of well obviously they expected more than five million well yeah i know but what is the uh, large cap here yeah, I know, because I can't imagine this movie was playing in a lot of the suburban multiplexes. This felt like a very yeah, urban movie right. in certain locations. So I don't know. I guess they've probably had a big home video market with Bronson. I would think, yeah. I think a lot of people's dads in 1989 would be renting something like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Falling asleep to it. Yeah. Loving every second, though. <laughs> I'm sure most people, even our loyal listeners and anyone casually checking in, have not seen 
Kanjite Forbidden Subjects. So if you have not, you can check it out on Tubi, which of course would have this movie. It's the only streaming service that would, and that's why Tubi's awesome. I think I watched Cop on there as well. Either refresh in yourself if you have a vague memory of watching it back in the day or need to see it for the first time, because if you're new to the program, we do essentially spoil every single thing you could. It's the whole thing, yeah. But then again, maybe you don't want to have to watch this, and you'd rather just experience Kinjite through our eyes. I have a sense most would be okay with it. (laughs) Director J. Lee Thompson is primarily remembered for The Guns of Navarone, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and the original Cape Fear, starring Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum. Cool. But he's also known for his longtime collaboration with the star of Kinjite, Mr. Charles Bronson. Kinjite, which would prove to be Thompson's final film, was the ninth picture that Bronson and Thompson made together. Oh. Previously, they worked together on St. Ives in 1976, The White Buffalo the next year in 77, Cabo Blanco in 80, 10 to Midnight in 83. That's a good one. The Evil That Men Do, 84, Murphy's Law, 86, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown in 87, (laughs) and Messenger of Death in 88. (laughs) Quite a run. Definitely. And while Bronson was 68 years old while filming Kanjite. (laughs) Ha ha! It is usually considered the sleaziest and most salacious of that group, yeah. though 10 to Midnight is right up there. It's Definitely. pretty sleazy. There's a naked villain. Yeah, but we were having a conversation off mic, and some yeah. of it is private, but part of the sure. point is why we were having it is private, but part of it is that we were realizing that it does not require nudity to make a film trashy because Absolutely. there isn't a ton of it in Kinjita. No. And, of course, nudity does not necessarily equal trashy either, but this movie figures out ways to just be devoid of any humanity, any empathy, just the dregs of society, just a real scummy movie. And then, and we'll get to it, I don't want to spoil it right now, it sucker punches you at the end for no reason, (laughs) where you're just like, why? Why would you do this? (laughs) Just a hopeless, hopeless movie. Filming started in June of 1988. It was one of a number of movies made in Hollywood with Japanese themes around this time, others including Collision Course and Black Rain. Uh The movie was meant to be shot back-to-back with The Gollum, which was to have the same star, Bronson, producer, and director, Thompson, as Kanjite. But that film was not made, and I'm wondering if the lackluster box office played a part in that decision. I think so. Although if it was supposed to be shot back-to-back, then I don't think they would have even known by that True. point. So I don't know. Kanjite came on my radar because of a podcast for the British publication Empire Magazine, which featured a conversation between Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright, where they were discussing this movie and just almost offhandedly were like, and then there's Kanjite, which is, of course, the trashiest movie. <laughs> because they were talking about Bronson and yeah. Thompson's collaboration and all these different movies. And... Because of the type of filmmakers they are, the way they spoke of it with such reverence, I was like, I got to see what this is. It makes your ears perk up. And then another podcast I listened to, We'll See You in Hell, one of the hosts watched it and was talking about it as well. And I believe I heard that before watching Kanjite. And he described a specific line of dialogue, which we will get to later. Mm -hmm. 
I think that was the thing that finally put it over the edge. Right? I thought, yeah. okay, well, I have to just watch this now. Right. And it, I think at the time it was free on Amazon Prime or something, so I just put oh, it on. And, yeah. Wow. <laughs> There's a phrase in this film that I've only ever heard mm-hmm. in one other place. Which I thought was the originator of that phrase. <laughs> yeah, but considering who wrote it, yeah. <laughs> it's probably not original. Right. That, of course, is a line of dialogue from Pulp Fiction, and when we get to it, we'll talk about that yeah, more yeah. in depth, but <laughs> that was also the line of dialogue that was talked about on We'll See You in Hell that got me interested. I was uh-huh. like, whoa. <laughs> This sounds nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Sure is. The Los Angeles Times called the movie, quote, a pretty odd, murky stew. If you think you might be offended by it, don't go. You will be. Thompson has always had an evil sense of humor, and the movie repeatedly crosses the line between dramatizing a situation and exploiting it, exposing racism or moral rot, and almost indulging in it. But the disturbance you feel in watching Kinjite doesn't just come because it has a sordid subject, some bad scenes, or a heavy cargo of shock and sleaze, but because it leaves us much of the time with no moral anchor. Usually I wouldn't just pick up a random review and quote it, but that (laughs) really just hit it right on the head at the end there. Yeah, I'd say so. It goes beyond the other kind of general exploitation movie. Which, if you've listened to our Foxy Brown episode, you'll remember that they do have a lot of sexual violence, mm-hmm. violence, etc. But it's all handled and done in a way that just doesn't feel like this. And yeah. so Kinjite, I think, feels worse because of what was in that quote. It just doesn't have any moral anchor. Because even in Foxy Brown, as we talked about, the morality of that movie is actually very traditional Americana, family, mm-hmm. no drugs in the neighborhood. The pimps and the drug dealers are the bad guys. Yep. The law is the good guy. And even ones that aren't as morally conscious as Foxy Brown, I think, still have some sort of moral center where there's at least one moral character. There's at least someone you can say, oh, they're a human being. Kinjite, No. There's just nothing redeeming about this. I know, it kind of takes it past trashy and just into dark and unsettling. It's past trashy and it's sleazy. Yeah. Which is a word that we have been using as a synonym of trashy, because it kind of is, but I think that is a whole other level. Mm -hmm. Trashy, I think there's a little bit of fun still. Yes. Sleazy, now you're talking about your real creeps and lowlifes checking (laughs) it out. Real dirt balls, yeah. (laughs) Like us. (laughs) Bronson himself said the film was, quote, a little more interesting than most I've been offered because of its culture clash element. It's from the point of view of a policeman who never read a business page in his life, Bronson said, but he can see what's happening and he's not sure he he likes it or understands it. I keep looking desperately for scripts that haven't been done dozens of times before. I think guys keep writing from what they see on TV, copying what's already there. It's not the best quote in the world. It seems as if Bronson who admittedly was born in the 20s and just came from a completely different era, but he's kind of glossing over the inherent racism, essentially saying that this guy would have a point because he doesn't like what he sees, which is essentially a reference to something we've actually talked about recently with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is that during this time period, there was a fear of Japan's growth and influence in America. I don't know... 
the specifics, as I've said when this has been come up before, I don't really know why this was a thing or what exactly know, was going weird. on, but it was a very specific time period, and that's definitely at play in this movie. Yeah. And it's definitely stoking the fires. When I talk about this movie being a wet dream for a certain segment of this country, just replace Japan with whoever the bad people du jour are to them, the, mm-hmm. the stoking the fears the unfounded fears. That's what this movie does the entire time. (laughs) Definitely. And I think it was even a little outdated in 1989. Not just the movie, but Bronson specifically with his quote there. As I said, Bronson was born in 1921. He's from not too far away from here, or at least that's where he was born, in Ehrenfeld, PA, which is between Johnstown and Altoona, for anyone familiar with the area. Driven past there. He's mostly known for having two distinct segments of his career, which actually has happened throughout history to other people as well. You kind of get into that action mold, and Mm -hmm. then that just becomes your thing. Liam Neeson kind of became that after he was a pretty legitimate actor. It's a little unfair to say he's not a legitimate actor still. I'm sure he could be, but a lot of the roles he takes are dumb action movies because that's where the money is at a certain point. And that's definitely what happened with Bronson, because he was in Once Upon a Time in the West, The Magnificent Seven, and The Great Escape. Yeah, yeah. But then it slowly morphs into Charles Bronson movies. Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely starts with Death Wish, which they made so many sequels of. (laughs) And then all of these movies that are kind of like it. (laughs) The word kinjite comes from the Japanese language and is the te conjugation form of the verb Kinjuru, which means to forbid. According to the book Charles Bronson by Michael R. Pitts, the meaning and relevance of this movie's title is that it refers to subjects such as sex, child molesting, prostitution, which are forbidden topics in Japanese culture. It also is closely associated with forbidden moves in sumo wrestling. Gotcha. Kinjite is sort of a catch-all for forbidden kind Mm. of things. The opening of Kinjite is fucking bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a word that sometimes annoys me when people use it when talking about movies, but... It's fitting here. It's fitting. This yeah. is so insane. And it's the opening of your movie. You're not <laughs> building towards this or tucking it in somewhere. Hoof. <laughs> if there wasn't a single trashy thing about the rest of this film... This the opening scene would still be more than enough for Kinjite to qualify for mm-hmm. one trashy summer. In a hotel room, Los Angeles, California, it opens with a shot of a briefcase. Inside the briefcase is a necktie, a jar of Vaseline, a riding crop. Mm, yeah. But definitely not one that was made for a horse. Sure. This is not a horse. Something uh, interesting is about to go down with the contents of this briefcase. But there's more. Condoms, a dildo, yeah, latex gloves. Mm-hmm. Starting to get a feel for where this might be heading. We meet Nicole Eggert as Dee Dee, a teenage prostitute stripping down to a black bra and underwear. Eggert would have only been about 16 years old when this was filmed, but okay. this doesn't stop the camera from lingering on a shot of her ass in the black panties. Suspect behavior. So pretty good indication of what we're in for here not getting a uh, g rating no the film cuts between the action and the credits we see dd Dee Dee 
getting her wrists tied to the bed frame, and then there's some cocaine being snorted. It wasn't until I did a second watch of this movie that I realized that some of these clips they're cutting to in the beginning are just things that happen later in the movie. <laughs> but I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. So at first, they're setting the stage with something that's happening in the moment in the hotel room, mm-hmm. kind of, because then we do go back in time in a second. But this is the opening with Nicole Eggert in the hotel room. Totally. But then the last two clips are Duke snorting cocaine, a character we don't really know, and that happens later because he's in an apartment, which he's not because he's in a car mm-hmm. right now. And the face-down nude Asian woman from the porno yes. is also in this opening for some reason. Right. And you're really confused as to what is supposed to be happening now. Once the credits are actually over, we jump back in time a little bit. Dee Dee is getting dropped off by Duke, her pimp, at the hotel. Duke played by Juan Fernandez. We then meet our hero, Matt's personal hero, Lieutenant Crow. No first (laughs) name ever mentioned or given. Crow. Played by Charles Bronson. And his partner, Eddie Rios, played by Perry Lopez. They're on to Duke's operation and have been staking out the hotel. Once Dee Dee goes inside, they make their move crashing the party we were seeing snippets of during the opening credits. Thought I heard a scream in here. Jesus Christ. Who the fuck are you? Get that kid over to Father Burks. Damn it. Fuck you and your badge. You can't come in here like that and abuse somebody's privacy, you son of a bitch. I'm going to take you down to the station. Bullshit I am. Dirty bastard. You get pleasure from hurting kids. You're going to swear out a statement that that shitbag Duke brings those kids to you. I can't do that. He'll blow the fucking whistle on me. In that case, you're going to feel what it's like to be one of those kids. This is insane. (laughs) Yeah. This movie forces you as an intellectual person to almost have to defend this John who is soliciting an underage prostitute only because his rights as a citizen are now going to be violated. They do pinch you into a weird situation as a viewer here. Essentially, Crow takes a huge shit all over the Constitution. (laughs) At every turn in this the movie. The whole movie. It Nobody has stops. rights. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need a warrant. Police brutality is not real. <laughs> Anything goes. Do whatever you want. By the way, how much prep do you think Bronson did for this role? Zero. Zero prep. Zero prep, zero energy. Not sure if he read the script. Like He's 68. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to be asleep. Yeah, exactly. And he kind of is in some of these scenes. <laughs> they have zero proof mm-hmm. that this girl is underage. Yeah. So they actually don't really have reasonable cause to break into the hotel room at all. And at no point do they ask her if she's underage. They just start the arrest process. Okay, prostitution is illegal, but it's not generally the type of thing that two cops break a door down and start 
beating people up. <laughs> so I don't know what to make of it. The guy who has solicited Nicole Eggert here is hilarious. He's so insane. Feels like he just did two huge bumps and is fucking feeling it because he wants to go at the police right Oof, away. Mistake. Who the fuck are you? Yeah, I know. He does start talking a lot of shit. Bronson, cool as hell, ignores him, tells Eddie to get that kid over to Father Burke, gesturing toward Dee Dee, flashes the badge. Damn it. Fuck you and your badge. You can't come in here like that. I can't believe how confident. somebody's privacy, yeah. you son of a bitch. <laughs> this guy is shockingly confident. Here comes one of the best exchanges in the entire movie. And I think it's a, a little bit of dialogue here that kind of summarizes how a lot of the scenes go. Crow says, I'm going to take you down to the station. The perp says, bullshit I am. Yeah. What? <laughs> I'm going to take you down to the station. Bullshit I am. Yeah, yeah. There are a few occasions in this film where it does just sort of feel like people are reading lines and not I actually talking to each other. It makes me think that Bronson didn't do the right line. <laughs> this guy seems like he really prepped for this scene. And Bronson was messing up his marks. <laughs> this guy actually yeah. developed a pretty bad cocaine habit. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Going method yeah. <laughs> for this part that he's in for five seconds. Yeah. This guy then swings his briefcase at Crow, who is a cop, who ducks, of course, because the guy <laughs> makes the most wild swing you've ever mm -hmm. seen. Beatdown ensues. It seems like Bronson can barely move. The John is hilarious, using everything in the room as a potential weapon, yelling, come on, you fucker. <laughs> he bigs up a big shitty wooden coat rack and is yeah. twirling it at him. <laughs> There's a lot of close-ups of the punches and stuff, too. Uh, always to the side. More side punching going on here than I've ever seen. <laughs> Brunson couldn't lift his yeah. arms high enough to punch <laughs> someone in the face. The coup de gras comes when the man is defeated by being kicked into a wood bureau, but refuses to sign a statement against Duke. So Crow throws the guy over the side of the bed and uses that dildo on him, the very same one he had been hoping to use on Dee Dee. What an opening to a movie. And he goes, and that's justice. Oh, wait, not yet. <laughs> a policeman anally raping a man yeah. with a dildo is the opening of a movie. <laughs> it's Al Pacino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. What a picture. <laughs> now, the girl in question, Nicole Eggert, the actress, like mm -hmm. I said, was underage. So this is pretty salacious that she's in her bra and underwear, but I... I want to stress, there's really no nudity in this and nothing that out of the ordinary, but then it just turns into the grossest, sleaziest thing you could imagine. Right. And you just feel like, ugh. But they didn't really have to do anything other than just set up certain bits of dialogue because it's not like you actually see a dildo go into this guy's ass. They cut yeah. away before he even does anything, really. Totally. But it does feel like unnecessary roughness here. <laughs> no, I would say necessary. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the guy was talking a lot of shit. <laughs> Well, I was thinking because he was trying to have sex with an underage girl. Well, that's where it started, but then know your place, dude. If the cops are there, don't keep badgering them. Turns out that Lieutenant Crow is living the goddamn dream as he's married to Kathleen, played by the always radiant and wonderful Peggy Lipton. I was stunned to see her show up, but a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Forever our Norma from Twin Peaks. That's right. R.I.P. Yeah, it's One great of the all-time greats. Yep. Although... 
everything about this movie is sick. Even the sweet, precious angel, Peggy Lipton, yes. doesn't want to know the details of what her husband is confessing to, but then just sort of allows him to be able to write it off by saying he got his Irish up. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> yeah. I didn't just anally rape someone with a dildo. No, no, no. I got my Irish up. Yeah. My temper. <laughs> They're all enabling this behavior. Yeah. Crow feels like the nastiness of the job is getting to him, like he's becoming as bad as the criminals he chases. Look, I'm not saying the guy in the hotel room didn't deserve a big rubber cock in his ass, but it is still sexual assault. It was over the line. But as we've said, dark and troubling times call for dark and troubled men to stand against the evil at our front door. True detective. Yeah. Crow is true detective. Yeah. (laughs) Crow is the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's talking about finally getting out. (laughs) Kathleen's like, well, you are 68. (laughs) You're the oldest active detective in the history of California. (laughs) Meanwhile, over in Tokyo, Hiroshi Hata, played by James Pax, who oddly enough played Lightning in Big Trouble in Little China. Ah. I think Pax actually is Chinese, but he's playing Japanese in this film. Gotcha. He's a Japanese businessman learning American culture before being transferred to the States. He is also sexually frustrated, and his marriage seems to be a little on the rocks. His wife is not <laughs> a fan of the tentacle porn that he looks at or whatever. He, <laughs> it, it feels like that's yeah. what they're talking about, right? I, I think so. Because that is big in Japan, and she acts as if it's something so horrifying. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know this world. This movie is about as subtle as a brick to the face. Every time they're transitioning to Japan or having the Japanese people on screen, they're reminding us that they're Japanese with the harps playing. I know, just ridiculous. (laughs) Flutes. On a crowded Tokyo subway, Heida witnesses a beautiful young woman being groped by a man seated next to her where she's standing. He is fascinated by the fact that she seems to moan silently and possibly even involuntarily orgasm, which is at least what he says later, and then does not cry out or let people know that she is being sexually molested. So here we are on our dark path. Yeah, this event will not only turn Heda on, but it will stick with him and stay with him in a way that... He does have like a huh moment (laughs) here. Chikan is a Japanese term referring to sexual harassment or other obscene acts conducted against the victim's will or a person who commits such an act. The term is frequently used to describe men who take advantage of the crowded conditions on the public transit systems to grope people. While the term is not defined in the Japanese legal system, vernacular use describes acts that violate several laws. For whatever reason, this is a thing... It's a known thing in Japan that that's a problem. They have those subway cars that are for women only. Disturbing. To try to curb this behavior. So this is what this is a take on. It's a well-documented thing. In the aftermath of the incident, Heda is told that he will be heading to Los Angeles for three years for work. Back in America, Crow is having trouble coming to grips with the fact that his 15-year-old daughter... Rita, played by Amy Hathaway, is becoming a woman. He's coming in through the front door. She's on the couch with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the lamp is turning on. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing up a lot of memories. Totally. 
Although, I got to tell you, I don't think I'm trying to date this dude's daughter. <laughs> Do you want to be there when this guy walks through the front door? A completely sadistic yeah. cop. <laughs> Although it seems like he can barely move, I so know. I don't know. I don't want to get punched in the side by him. I actually kind of like the moment when he goes up to Kathleen and is bitching about it. Yeah. And she just sort of eggs him on by asking about <laughs> if the boy's pants were unzipped and all these different things. And he's like, you don't need to paint a picture. Everybody is egging him on. As this goes on, like the priest, his boss. And I didn't feel like the priest was egging him on. I felt like he was trying to warn him. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't do this. For whatever reason, there's a lot of gratuitous arena football action going on. Just seems like a fun afternoon. That was a welcome yeah, addition to the movie. Way more people at this game than I would have ever imagined. I know. They get a big draw. Duke and his associate are at the game looking for pretty young girls to turn out. They spot Rita there with her dad and a friend. This is what's weird, though. Duke confirms through dialogue that he already knows Crow. Right. And has sort of a beef with him. Seems real dumb to antagonize him by acting as if they're going to target his daughter. Yeah. Because at first you're thinking, are they just going to try to kidnap her from this game? Is that where this movie is going? They're going to abduct his daughter? Because it seems like they get a look at her and immediately want to. Mm -hmm. That's the way I was like, this is what the movie is going to be. But instead, they just sort of walk over to the other side of the arena and then run into Crow and then antagonize him about it and make comments, which seems like a really dumb fucking thing to do. I think so. Why would you want to make it personal with this guy? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Have you heard about what he does? So they're saying, oh, you'd get like 5000 a week to put her on the street, which is an insane thing to say to a man about his 14-year-old daughter. Yeah, especially one that's a lunatic. (laughs) So Bronson throws a hot dog in Duke's face (laughs) and then elbows the other guy. Right. And at that point, Rita and her friend have come over. And Rita's reaction to this is very strange, too. She just seems amused by it. This movie, Bronson continuously being allowed to remain a cop. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many insane things that he does. And the, the fact that her, his daughter wasn't, like, mortified. I know. Just seemingly was just like, oh, well, he does this. Yeah. <laughs> Not feeling too great about what Duke insinuated, in addition to being determined to shut him down, Crow waits for him in his car and then makes Duke drive at gunpoint. So this is, I guess, the next night or something. I don't know. <laughs> the timeline, who cares? Yeah. This was a wild sequence, though. What the hell have you brought me here for? You'll find out. Look, I think you're a little bit unstable. You got a wife and a couple of kids, right? What do you make? About 35 grand? There's a president with a diamond face. 25 big ones at Tiffany's. It's yours and we never see each other again. like to shove this up your ass, but I don't want to dirty my hands. You're going to eat it. You're going to eat it or I'm going to blow your head off. Open up. Open up your mouth. Oh. <laughs> 
gonna die. I'm gonna die. No, you're not. But you are gonna have to stick your head between your legs to tell the time. Just watch. Personal, Duke. It's a question of ethics. Should a man enjoy a $20,000 car bought by the efforts of teenage girls on their knees and backs? You're gonna stop running these little girls, Duke. Because if you don't, you're dead. Dead in the gutter, dead. Dangerous. When Duke tries to bribe Crow with his Rolex, Crow puts the gun to his head and makes Duke swallow it. Which didn't really seem possible to me. It feels like... You would choke? Yeah. I hadn't really ever seen anything like this, where he's <laughs> swallowed the watch, and then just, like, the way they convey to you that this is an ongoing painful process is he's just, like, spit is just coming out constantly. Yeah. He's got, like, saliva all over his face. It's like he's kind of choking on yeah. it. And I don't know. <laughs> it's such a weird thing to happen in a movie. <laughs> Swallow this. As Duke coughs and gasps and basically struggles to carry on, Crow sets his car on fire <laughs> while he's still inside it. <laughs> this is one of those things, though. It, if you're going to go this far, it does seem like you should kill this dude, though. <laughs> Just shoot him. Because will they kill someone later I and know. act like it's no big deal <laughs> so why don't they just kill that was the, the scene i was thinking about when i was just starting to laugh about what he does as a cop <laughs> folks tubi is free just get this app and watch Kenjite. you won't be disappointed it's so insane <laughs> but he knows the business duke is in he knows he's like a dangerous guy He's already been taunted about his daughter. It's like, if you're going to go to this level, it does seem like leaving him alive is a risk. But Well, they need to set it up where this is a world yeah. where a policeman has to convince everyone else that child prostitution is worth making a big deal about. Yeah, everyone else is like, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> and that is what I mean. It definitely appeals to a certain fear-mongering side of the country that we're living in right now the yeah. way the world is now this is the fantasy that the that people like this get in their heads 
they see a movie like this and they're like, yeah, that's what it feels like. We have yeah. to convince everyone that this is a big deal. Normally with these action movies, even the ones that are more on the grindhouse side of things, I think that you are supposed to root for your action hero most of the time. Bronson oh, yeah, I know. Like that's what makes this weird. So stone cold. I think they were a little bit self-aware with yeah. these types of movies where they knew it was supposed to be an anti-hero. Sure. And the darkness wasn't necessarily denied. They would admit that they were flawed mm-hmm. and they were going for that. But clearly they take that a little too far. Right. Because if the message of this movie is ultimately that racism is bad, I wouldn't say that that comes across. <laughs> They're not the best at conveying and that. And I think yeah. that you could definitely take it the other way a mm-hmm. lot of the time in the movie is what they're trying to say, that it's okay. So It is bizarre. I don't know. <laughs> the morality of this movie is fascinating. You're right. kind of like, I want to hear what the person who wrote these specific yeah. scenes actually thinks about these things. I know. We need the audio commentary. <laughs> the song choice over the scene when... Crow and his wife are watching their daughter Rita in the swim meet is so insane. It's some sort of ballad sung by a woman that you would think was from Love Story or something. I tried to look it up because it it was one of those rare instances where I thought it might be funny to actually put a song clip here, but I I couldn't even find this on YouTube. I bet. (laughs) It's like a non-existent song. (laughs) The song does not exist. Written by no one. When Rita is celebrating after the swim meet in her one-piece bathing suit, a photographer, presumably from the school or whatever, comes over and is taking pictures of her, and mm. she's doing all these little poses and stuff. Yeah, it doesn't s- seem like it's going to go w- over well with Dad. Yeah, you can just sense that <laughs> Crow's getting upset. Couldn't they at least cover her up? Yeah. And then Kathleen looks at him, and he just goes, well, she could catch her death of cold. Yeah. <laughs> It's like Rodney Dangerfield. (laughs) The film gives us an example of how Duke operates with him and his associate driving. They spot a young couple fresh off of a bus in Hollywood. It's a guy and a girl. I thought it was kind of funny that they play out the whole scenario where you actually see these kids who are like huddled together and they're acting all sheepish and nervous. And they go to the deli and they're looking in mournfully and you can just get through the visual that they don't have money. Mm-hmm. And so this is how they're going to get preyed upon Oof. by a pimp. Yep. And then they walk away from the window. And Duke then can see into the deli from yep. the car and sees Crow. <laughs> the whole plan changes. <laughs> Thankfully for these kids. Duke decides to go for a spur of the moment drive by. He yeah. takes out an Uzi and starts firing Not it. Not the most well-thought-out plan here. Times it right as the waiter is coming around the side of the table. <laughs> several people are killed. I know. People are just wiped out. The waiter, several other diners. Of course. Duke left to walk the streets, by the way, after this. Crow, yeah. fine. <laughs> Matt, to be fair, yeah. they do have a five-second exchange between their boss and the two cops. True. Where they're like, why would anyone want to do this to you? Do you have any enemies? And then that's when he tells his boss that he made a guy swallow a watch and lit his car on fire. And then his boss is just like... I can't hear any more of this. 
No, he almost seems to be like, well, then he gets a pass because I would try to kill you too. And those other people that died are justified <laughs> collateral damage. <laughs> That's basically how his boss acts. And then they just drop it. We're not investigating that anymore. <laughs> it's a fair court. It seems like that would be the slam dunk. I know. They're having so much trouble getting everything to line up for a bust for the <laughs> prostitution. The fact that he just murdered three people. Eh, whatever. <laughs> they we'll- know who it is. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> By the way, just because a cop did something wrong and made you swallow a watch doesn't give you immunity to murder people. And if it did, you would think it would only be the guy that made you swallow the watch, not anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Crow and his partner, Eddie, survive. There's a couple of scenes with the captain that are pretty funny. He's always yelling and unsympathetic, worried about his blood pressure. <laughs> I can't hear this right now. It does almost feel like a sketch, like a parody of it. Like, we got to have the captain who's going to flip out at everything he does. It almost felt like they forgot it. And they're like, oh, we got to add a couple of those scenes in here now. (laughs) Bronson seems barely awake half the time. Yeah, I know. Which I guess is part of the style and the charm. Because he's just so deadpan. I don't know. It just appeals to certain people, certain dads. Like, this guy is my guy. As someone who's seen a few Bronson movies, I haven't seen a ton of them. I think I've only seen three of these. I've seen the real movies that he's into. I would say that back, and Death Wish was about 15 years before this. I would say he was a little more animated and slightly more more real. Okay, It wasn't just going through the motions Mm -hmm. as much. It did just sort of become cut and paste. Yeah. <laughs> Probably reading his lines off of a cue card. <laughs> Walking off set, I just gave you gold, you saying to the director. <laughs> For those of you who haven't quite put the pieces together, this is your standard right-wing fantasy of when the laws and regulations of the world, your constitutional rights are preventing us from getting the real scum. We're putting the scum back on the streets. When all of those things fail to do enough, it takes a man like Charles Bronson to get it done. He works outside the law. It's one of those kind of movies. Except it doesn't really even ever get up to the energy where they're really even pushing that that hard. It's like a token pushback to Bronson. Like His boss yells at him, but he's never even threatened like he's going to be off the force or anything. (laughs) Yeah. In the meantime, Hayda who you may have forgotten about at this point, <laughs> and his family have arrived in America. Yeah, transferred to uh, Los Angeles. One night, while out at a bar with clients from work, Hayda becomes drunk, mm-hmm. and you can really the wheels start, start seeing it yeah. happening as it's all coming together. You're starting to cringe. All of a sudden, he's getting on a bus. Oh, no. All of a sudden, wait a minute, what's going on? Oh, that's Crow's daughter rita why is she on the bus yep he's sitting down she's standing up oh (laughs) it's like in slow motion talk about cringing so hard you have to look away especially after you've already seen the movie once oh he's not really gonna do this right (laughs) hayda is riding home at night on a crowded city bus one that seems to get more and more crowded at every stop as a result a young girl ends up being pushed up against where Hayda is seated. Oh, no. Except this isn't some anonymous girl. This is Rita, Crow's 15-year-old daughter. 
Heda attempts to imitate what he saw back in Tokyo by molesting Rita on the crowded bus, but unlike the Japanese woman who remains silent, Rita screams. Heda runs away just as the bus is making a stop, Ugh. but then is ultimately robbed and beaten by a mugger in, I guess, in an unrelated incident. Poetic justice? Because <laughs> yeah. it never really factors into anything. Even though there's, they're trying to build it towards poetic justice because people are about to beat him up over this. But he gets yeah. beat up separately from this. Yeah, what you're alluding to is yeah. several innocent Asian men are beaten by bystanders who suspect that one of them is the man who groped the girl, and it devolves into like a full-on street brawl. <laughs> Good lord. It's like double dragon going on yeah, over yeah. there. <laughs> I feel like our audience is mature enough to be able to handle me quoting this line okay, verbatim. Oh, boy. Because I feel like you have to hear that. Yes. To fully grasp how shocking it is. Here we go. (laughs) The reason why these men attacked all of these other Asian men was because once they get off the bus and Rita's friend asks her what's going on, what's wrong, Rita cries out, some Oriental guy touched my holy of holies. Mm. (laughs) Wow. That is a wow line. (laughs) What? But also jumps out to many a cinephile. I want to tell you this, and I'm really speaking out of turn because I have no authority to remember what it was like in 1989, but I kind of feel like that line was written for the audience not to think it was offensive. I don't think it was supposed to be offensive. Hmm. The Oriental part. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm feeling like they still felt like that was acceptable. Yeah, I think at that point, general society... Probably. Yeah, I think so. I'm not saying it was cool to do it. No. But there wasn't this big pushback from anybody, so people were very casually racist, of course, which mm-hmm. is what a lot of these movies are like, although it kind of goes beyond just casual in this one. There's so much to break down from just those words. First, you have what is essentially now a slur that she just blurts out, but then the phrase, holy of holies, spoken uh-huh. by a 15-year-old girl, Wow, that is so weird. Shock. Shock value through the roof right now. For those of you who don't remember, Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction uses a similar phrase. I may be wrong. Does he say holy of holies or does he say holiest of holies? I always thought it was holiest of holies that I he think, says. Yeah I, think, yeah. yeah, I think he says holiest. See? He yeah. changed it. It's a little different. <laughs> it's like that vanilla ice queen thing. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of. The awkwardness over Rita blurting out such a phrase is then compounded by the fact that we then cut to her and her friend in a police station being questioned about what happened, and the lead detective is an Asian man. Right. And then Rita gets uncomfortable as if she doesn't know how to describe what the man looked like and then is looking at the detective, and then the detective said, Oh, I guess because all Asians bear a superficial similarity. And at first you think he is being sarcastic. And he may be. I'm not ruling it out. But by the time he gets to the end of that sentence and then says his next sentence, this movie, the racism is so pervasive that you can't tell if he's being serious or not. If he just said that as if, I know that all Asian people look the same, basically. And he's an Asian man saying it. Like I was telling you, I I can't tell if that's supposed to be sarcastic because this movie is so racist sometimes. I know. I feel like they could have written that to 
give themselves leeway. It's like, oh, let's have an Asian guy save us. His delivery is, to me, feels like he's being a dick, and, and justifiably so, of course, but yeah. that's the way it feels like it's coming across. But you're right that he sort of changes tone and it doesn't really seem to hit. No. Because, yeah, the, no one reacts to it. Right. It's very strange. I know. And it would be out of place in this movie for him to be calling that out. Because it would be the one time. Unless they were flirting with the idea of making that guy seem like a wet blanket over what are really good points that this movie thinks it's making. Sure. Yes. <laughs> you have these people who get offended over dumb shit. Right. <laughs> when there's little girls being raped and put out as prostitutes, which is basically what this movie's saying. Yikes. Yes. Needless to say, Crow does not take the news of what happened to Rita well. Somebody cops a feel off Rita on the bus. Nothing happened. And you're behaving like she was raped or something. Some sleazy oriental gropes my daughter and you say nothing happened? My daughter? Jeez, maybe you don't realize what's going on in this country, but you take the Japanese, for instance. They're buying hotels, office buildings, golf courses. They're taking over. You and me, we're busting our ass, and then we suck hind tits. What the hell's going on up here? You see what I mean? Taking over. Look at that. Hold this car. What the hell do you think this is, a parking lot? You are double parked, you understand? I'm going to throw your ass in jail if you don't move this car now. What the hell are you looking at? You people behave like you own this town. Well, this is not Tokyo, this is Los Angeles. You over there, you're obstructing the sidewalk, and your goddamn cars are obstructing the thoroughfare. And you're fucking obstructing me. I apologize, he's not feeling too well. Come on, partner, let's go. Look, of course it's understandable that he's going to be upset. Beyond upset, this is horrifying. And the fact that a lot of the other characters don't treat it like a big deal to Crow's face actually makes him kind of sympathetic a couple times. I agree. It's also... Wow, I can't believe how callous everyone is. What's wrong with you people, too? Like, you know that this is infuriating him. And I think that the movie wants us to make the assumption that the world is so fucked up and the scum is so prevalent. I know they act like it's the so world. normal. Yeah. Getting molested is no big deal now. Get over it. That's basically what a lot of people's mentality it's is. It's worse than that in the movie. They're explaining to him why it's not molestation. Well, that molestation isn't a thing. It's a euphemism. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? And it it is weird, and that is the one part that makes him a sympathetic character is he seems to be the only one that grasped how horrible this is. Right. But what I was eventually working to, and now I just ahead, realized, that I, no, no, I, I got off the track there for a second was that that is understandable, but he immediately uses this as justification oh, right. to yes. allow himself to hate Asians openly, which you assume based on Rita using that kind of language is how he always felt. Mm-hmm. But now he feels like he can be open about it because he has justification. And this movie is done in a way where I feel like a decent amount of the audience is going to take this as, yeah, this is justification. He's right. 
because that's how this movie acts. Yeah. <laughs> he goes on an insanely racist and xenophobic tirade outside of that hotel where those cars and people are, where he just starts fucking losing it. And that is straight into what we were referencing in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode mm-hmm. with what was going on. That's basically what he's just yelling. Right. You come in here to our country and you know that kind of a thing. Somehow his daughter being molested is related to Japanese people buying hotels and golf courses. <laughs> I'm a not bizarre really sure. analogy, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of times I think when people harbor these feelings, they do make yeah. those weird He is angry. He is certainly angry over the situation. Yeah, he's giving in to the feelings of rage and revenge, which is relatable and understandable, but you have to get help. Right. That's really, and I don't think a guy like no, no. Crow is going to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> they recommended him to the department shrink, but uh, he wasn't interested. And I think that it is movies like this that justify processing your rage this way. Mm-hmm. This is kind of what the movie does. Oh, yeah. Use that rage to get the real scumbag Duke, essentially. Right. Instead of learning how to process these feelings in a healthy way. That won't turn you into some sort of a racist monster. Right. In a strange twist of fate, shortly after Rita's traumatic incident on the bus, it's Fumiko, Heda's own daughter, that will fall victim to the infamous Duke. Fumiko is abducted during a school break, right in broad daylight, to be used in Duke's child prostitution ring. I say it's a strange twist of fate because, of course, Crow is assigned to find the girl against his will. He's newly radicalized, and he doesn't care who knows it. <laughs> Imagine saying to your boss, I don't care what your job is. Oh, right. Any job in the world where you have to relate to some other person, a customer, a coworker, whatever, and you tell your boss, I'm not going to do it because I hate Asian people, which is what he does. Stunning. And you not be fired. <laughs> not even really reprimanded in any yeah. way. He's basically just threatened, like, I'll put you back as a street cop in Glendale. Like, okay. <laughs> Go walk the beat. <laughs> but this is also the scene we were referencing earlier when their captain is so unsympathetic to the fact that Crow's daughter was molested that he's almost mocking him for acting like it's a big deal. I know. Very bizarre. <laughs> That's all I could say. Totally. Maybe not the healthiest boss. I don't think so. Employee yeah. relationship ever. This movie is irredeemable. It's straight trash. It doesn't mm-hmm. even have to show much of anything, just the implication. Because yeah. now Fumiko's abducted. She's in Duke's townhouse condo, and they go through this whole gang rape sequence. And they do it in a way where if you weren't even paying attention, you probably wouldn't even know what was going on because it's not in the room. But they do it in a way where you see the guys come in and out. Yeah, that's dark. If the irredeemability of the movie was unclear up until now... Let them hammer it home with this. Cy Richardson plays Duke's right-hand man. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Keith David in Requiem, which I hesitate to say because it makes me seem like I'm just comparing them because they're black. Mm. But they do kind of have a similar vibe. Yeah, The casual sleaziness of this guy when he's talking about you got to broaden your horizons. I know. I, we can turn this boy out, too. He that wanted, line really jumped out to me because even in this movie, that was unexpected. Yeah, he, he's like... <laughs> Nothing is off limits here of lines we're willing to cross. He's like the most liberal character in yeah. the movie just because he's not homophobic right. and who he wants to pimp out. Yeah. 
Somehow, though, the guy in this movie is way worse, though, even. Mm -hmm. And Keith David and Requiem seems like as bad as you could get. But then you're like, oh, well, yeah, but what if they were all children? Yeah, that would be worse. (laughs) It's an unfathomably cruel fate for Famico. Just a real awful vibe to the movie now. I know. It's just relentlessly grim. And let's be honest. And I'm not accusing anyone specifically, okay. but the vibe is supposed to be you're not supposed to care as much because those aren't the American characters. It they wouldn't weird. make that happen to Crow's daughter. Yeah. I guess maybe they would. I, that's unfair because I guess they do that kind of in Death Wish and stuff like that. Yeah. They do make it. But it does seem like you're not supposed to be that bummed out. Agree. Uh, there's just a real carelessness with humanity in this movie. <laughs> At first, Crow can barely contain his general dislike of Japanese people, but an outpouring of emotion from Fumiko's parents starts to soften him up. His feelings begin to change when he relates more directly to Heida. It seems like his line of thinking is probably, these people care about their daughter as intensely as I care for Rita. Hey, wait, holy shit, I realized they're people too. (laughs) That kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) Without putting a child actor into any sort of actual sexual situation and without any nudity or anything like that, this movie still finds a way to not shy away from Fumiko's horrific experience. It's not graphic, but it's still so disturbing. I know. You have that like creep in the back of the limo who's talking as if he's got this fantasy where he's talked to her headmistress Ugh. and she's been bad or something and he's going to punish her. Yeah, it's horrible. And that guy, it's just the commitment to the bit when you're a literal pedophile with a child sitting next to you and he's still doing this whole role play thing. And Ugh. then there's the the female pedophile later, mm-hmm. which is an odd addition to, to the include. yep. Ugh. It ugh. I know that I'm just saying it over and over, but I just think you're used to seeing movies that would leave some of this out. You could do this exact same story in a way that wouldn't feel this bad. Not go this relentlessly, deep. Right. Because it just wants you to know how horrible it is. They could just graze the surface, but yeah. It's a very uh, less than zero type reality here. Crow and Eddie, I don't know exactly what happens, but they bust a porno set where I guess they thought Duke was going to be. I think they got some bad intel that Famico was going to be there. or it, I, I wasn't guess, clear on that, yeah. I think it was actually, and I apologize in advance, but I think it was actually a case of someone not knowing the difference oh boy. between Asian women or something. I think yeah. that's kind of okay. how this all happened. Because there does, is a different Asian woman at right. the place they show up. And she's not a child. They're right. adults yeah. in an actual porno, not some sort of a child porn thing or anything like that. There's no Fumiko, false alarm. Hayda is losing it, starting to crack. He gets into a fight outside of a movie theater with some carnival barker type guy trying to talk people into seeing Emmanuel 4. <laughs> <laughs> the that shit part this jumped guy out was saying me, yeah. was so insane, too. Because <laughs> Emmanuel 4? He's like, oh, what do you like? Do you like you like them young? We got them in here. They're 9, 13. I'm like, what, is it, what does that mean? Yeah. Of course they're not in that movie. <laughs> I guess they just lie to get you to come in, but it's so fucked up that that's the thing you go to. I know. To try to talk someone into the movie. <laughs> Doesn't make you feel great about life. He gets into a fight with this guy. Meanwhile, Famico's encountering a lady pedophile. 
Didi, of all people, re-enters the narrative as Crow tries to track down Duke, assuming he's involved in Famico's disappearance. Even though he has no evidence that Duke is involved. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a good hunch, and thank God that he did, but it's a big city. Yeah. There's a lot of crime in it. He just assumes it's Duke. There's no real connection to it, I don't think. But just like everything else in this movie, the return of Didi is so hopeless and grim and painfully dark. Didi talks about how she'd rather be with Duke than her own parents. She says it wasn't Duke who first turned her out initially. It was her own stepfather when she was 12. She fucked him and his friends until she was 14. Holy fucking shit. They're adding in scenes just to up how terrible everything is. Yeah. Even Crow doesn't know what to make of this. He's so one-track-minded on Duke that when she starts saying this shit, he's just like, wait, what? 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 (laughs) This movie really walks that thin line, that razor's edge, between straight grindhouse fodder, but then wanting to pretend as if it's taking the ramifications seriously. Mm -hmm. And it has real repercussions and real-life grit. But it also wants it to be as trashy and horrific as possible. I think it completely fails in terms of trying to be sure serious about anything. But oof, Duke was good to me at one point, is what she says. She got, she yeah. got to go to Jamaica. Dee Dee's wasn't fucked up. I don't think this was really the confessional they were hoping to get here. He bought her fancy clothes, took her on trips all over the place. They were looking for a little bit more of a character assassination here. But eventually, after Crow really tries to appeal to her decency by bringing up Famico, she does feel guilty enough to provide Crow with the name of a clothing store that Duke frequents and even plays dominoes at during non-business hours. That night, Crow and Eddie stake the joint out, but Dee Dee... Oh, oh, my sweet, naive Dee Dee. Mm. She calls the store with a warning because she still feels connected to Duke. Oh, boy. Gentlemen, can I help you? Uh, two of your tenants just drove in. A flashy dresser known as Duke and a heavyset man. Does that ring a bell? We have 200 apartments. You'll have to be more specific. Some details so I can help you. We think there's a Japanese juvenile staying with him. Japanese? Ah, well, let's see. We have a Matsuda, a Manabe, a Toyoma. Hey! This is shit face. We're not fucking around. What's the apartment number? Hey, don't get mad. They're looking for apartment 906. Elevators to your right. Crow and Eddie track Duke back to his apartment, but the damn doorman, being a pest, warns Duke that the cops have arrived. Duke and a couple of the prostitutes bolt but his associate stays behind because Famico won't come out of the bedroom. Crow and Eddie don't even bother to knock, instead shooting their way through the front door. No warrant in hand. Duke's associate, his name is Levon, by the way. I didn't don't think I said that. Thinks he can play it cool and take the arrest while the cops will have to play by the rules. But what Levon is obviously forgetting is that he's dealing with Charlie fucking Bronson. Totally. Mr. Majestic. Mm-hmm. Crow and Eddie. Yeah, that was a miscalculation by him. Hold Levon upside down off of the apartment. You always balcony. love these tough guys, how quick they go to whimpering. To try and get him to reveal where Duke ran off to. 
but Levon slips and they drop him to his death. By the way, <laughs> after he's like warning them that he's slipping. <laughs> I don't think they were strong enough to no, pull him back. I know, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing about Crow, man. Yeah. He forgets that he's 68. Yeah. <laughs> he forgets he's not strong we anymore. We can't hold this guy. So Crow and his partner <laughs> are left just holding the boots. That actually just gave me a great idea for a comedy where you take one of these tough guy cops who used to do these like yeah outside the lines kind of thing like Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon mm-hmm. or somebody like a Bronson right but then they get old and <laughs> they're not as strong they're not as tough they're not as badass as they used to be, mm-hmm. but they still think they are. So it's just like endless situations like this where they're right. accidentally killing people, <laughs> getting beat up and yeah. stuff. <laughs> no big loss, though, for society with Levon. I do want to make that clear. These are all shitty people, and they do deserve the fates that befall them, but you really can't glorify a cop just doing whatever he wants because usually the restrictions that these types of movies rail against are there for a reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you have to protect everyone and you have to say innocent until proven guilty and all these different things right or else you just have a fascist state and (laughs) that's sort of what they want is that in these films that the cops can just have immunity to do anything at any time after Levon is dead, Crow and Eddie are then able to rescue Famico. Later, the Haydas visit Crow's house with gifts to show their appreciation for his work. Oh, yes. This is where everything comes to a head. Rita recognizes Hiroshi as the man who groped her on the bus, and he recognizes her as well. Starts sweating immediately. But neither one says anything. Weird. I feel like you know that neither are going to say anything. Because it's probably the easiest version to write. (laughs) That's the reason. No, I'm joking, of course. (laughs) But I just feel like that... I don't know. I wasn't surprised by that. I felt like that was what was going to happen, that neither were going to say anything. But it does beg the question, what happens if Rita does say something? Dead, immediately. Well, I think racism is going to buy Hayda at least a minute. Because they're going to ask her, are you sure... Mm. They're really going to hit up yeah. Asian people look the same, that kind of a thing. Okay, sure. For at least a minute. I guess he would quickly go into like, no, that couldn't possibly be. Are you saying that would be Crow or Hada? No, Hada. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> it would be sort of an interesting way to end this movie. If they just had like an argument about it? If instead of Duke getting away and drawing out that confrontation for later, mm-hmm. you tie the bow up on duke here yeah either he's dead or you do the same thing you do at the end of the movie but it's just now and then this is where the movie goes in a different direction where she does say it's him then you have your third act but what that looks like i want to know that's interesting totally happy ending though right wrong (laughs) dead fucking wrong yep Due to the nightmarish experiences she had during her time as a sex slave, Fumiko commits suicide by overdose. This is the sucker punch. Even showing this scene is a trashy decision. Yeah. It's a trashy decision to even include it. Have this be part of the story. Like, Just let her go live out in the country and try to go through some recovery phase. But if you convince yourself that you have some legitimate reason to have her commit suicide... And you really think it's crucial, 
you could just do the law and order move at the end of the episode where they get the phone call and then they make a face and then they hang up the phone. Mm-hmm. She's dead. She's dead. Yeah. She's gone. Right. Dick Wolf comes yeah. on the screen. That's <laughs> the moment done. you could have had without showing her totally. actually kill herself, which is so crazy. This is a child. I know. <laughs> is this really necessary? I don't think so. It's a sucker punch bummer. In a movie that never makes you feel good, this certainly takes it to a new low. <laughs> this is what I was referring to earlier, walking that disingenuous line where you want to do both things. You want to play both sides, have your trashy grindhouse versus serious real-world repercussions because it's pretty heavy, and they oh, know yeah. that it's heavy. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, yeah, we've justified that with this because look what happened to her. And yeah, unfortunately, that would be a potentially very dark thing that could happen. Doesn't have to be in the movie. Doesn't have to be in this movie. Yeah. If you had more capable, nuanced filmmakers, you could actually tell that story and it would be very sad and upsetting and not totally. a movie you'd want to rewatch. But it could be done tastefully. But I don't think tasteful was in the cards here. <laughs> no. Before she died, Fumiko wrote a poem for Crow. In the aftermath of her suicide, Crow and Eddie realize it was a clue as to Duke's whereabouts. He's hiding out on a boat in the harbor. So we're headed into the final confrontation, the big showdown. The scene at the harbor is as ridiculous as anything else in the movie, which is saying a lot. For some reason, there's one of those giant metal claws on a crane. Yes. Just there. (laughs) I actually thought Duke's use of this was a pretty good move. Yeah, you would say that he blew a 3-0 series lead yeah. after he kills Eddie with the metal claw. I know. Picking up the whole car, and he's got Crow 50 feet in the air. Seems like you've got it. I know. Somehow they blow this lead. <laughs> but it is a particularly brutal way for Eddie to die I know. in a character that is a ghost yeah. most of the movie. He's just a guy that's there. Not bringing much to the table. <laughs> Even the conversations he has with yeah. Crow, it just feels like two guys talking to themselves. <laughs> There's no connection it's at all. Along for the ride, all of a sudden he's got a giant metal claw sticking through him. <laughs> well, what do you think the survival rate for partners is in movies like this? It's low. <laughs> Especially if you're partnered with Crow. <laughs> that can't be very safe. He's a loose cannon. <laughs> He's like Tanner from Bad News Bears. He's just making fights with anybody. <laughs> He's breaking into hotel rooms just because right. he thinks that a prostitute looks the same age as his daughter. That's all he needed. <laughs> no other justification or a warrant or permission or anything. He does whatever he wants. Totally. Crow climbs out onto the claw before the car is dropped, and then he shoots down and kills Duke's getaway driver. That's right, 68-year-old Bronson, 50 feet in the air on this giant metal claw. He shoots the crane claw operator, too, and then is stuck up there, spinning. (laughs) How does he get out of this This one? This is almost slapstick. (laughs) He shoots the crane operator. Who falls on the controls, Ah. and now he's going in a circle. (laughs) Duke, meanwhile, throws the other driver out of the crash car and tries to escape. 
were you kind of confused by what was happening here? I was. Because it doesn't seem like there's any exit to this area. Because How, where right. is he driving? Yeah. He drives for like the next five minutes. It's constantly being blocked by those big <laughs> cargo hulls. I honestly could not tell you how Crow gets down from the crane. I was like, did I miss something? <laughs> I know. I rewound it, <laughs> watched it again, and I still didn't know what happened. No. <laughs> That's the kind of top-notch operation they can't they had. write their way out of this one, so it's just, just cut to him like, back <laughs> on solid ground. That's actually even funnier than what I was thinking, which was they didn't get anything in... <laughs> They didn't get it in coverage, so they just didn't have it when they were editing the film. <laughs> but, you know, you were like, they knew at the script stage. They're like, I don't know. He's just on the ground now. <laughs> Crow with one bullet. <laughs> this is so insane. crow with one bullet sets off a crazy chain of explosions that conveniently wipe out duke's henchmen (laughs) he shoots i don't know gasoline i'm not really sure just stuff starts exploding all over the place yeah totally (laughs) duke keeps driving and driving no idea where he's going because he doesn't leave Instead, deciding to settle things once and for all with Crow, so he's literally right there next to Crow again. Where was he driving during all of those I know. minutes? Some escape route. <laughs> Finally, Crow baits Duke into trying to run him over with his car and so- moves <laughs> oh, to the Jesus side. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Somehow times it perfectly <laughs> so that the giant claw, which is still spinning around in a circle, which, yes, is now down at ground level. Yeah. Will knock Duke's car off course at just the right second and send him flying into the water. <laughs> How could he have known that Duke would have accelerated at the right moment at the right rate of speed? How would he have ever been able to figure that out? It's insane. <laughs> Since Duke can't swim, Crow has the option to let the piece of shit drown, but ends up dragging him out. Which we don't see. How the fuck would they have filmed that in any way that would have been believable? Would have been great. Bronson starts drowning. (laughs) To go get him. The movie ends with them like wrapping that tinfoil blanket around him. He's not wearing a shirt. And he's like like, rescuing him at sea. (laughs) Crow, Crow has something else in mind. Something he considers to be poetic justice. Just going to prison. I know. (laughs) Oh, I've got something rich in store for you. The thing that should happen. Getting arrested and going to jail. (laughs) There's a little cherry on top. I know, there's more to it, but... Crow, somehow, who I think is just a policeman, (laughs) I don't know what authority he has, has Duke interred in a prison inhabited by sexually aggressive inmates. (laughs) Is that a special room? This is where you're going to stay. His cellmate, a giant of a man, makes several not-so-subtle sexual illusions so that Duke knows damn well what's in store for him. As Duke screams out in anguish, Crow walks away in deep satisfaction. 
so tough. So effortlessly yeah, tough. Yeah. <laughs> now that's what I call justice. <laughs> that's what he says. And as the audience were screaming, is it? Yeah. What? <laughs> you know, Duke, it was my intention to leave you beside the road somewhere in a gunny sack. But I felt that justice would not have been served. Poetic justice, that is. What the fuck are you talking about? You'll see. Sweet thing, I got something big and long for you. Hey, pretty boy, cut you. Hey, guys, I got me a new mama. And when I'm through with this bitch, she's going to walk out of this cell block wearing a strapless and heels. Crow, you're a fucking bastard. You're a fucking bastard, Crow. about this movie's fucked up even if you want to interpret it in different ways or whatever having the karma punishment for her father's sin being getting abducted and getting raped and put being turned out as a prostitute and then committing suicide that happening to famico is like the payback i guess karmically it's such a weird horrific movie by the way danny trejo I know, One making an appearance. Prisoners yeah. saying he's got something big and long or something for him. <laughs> yeah. I almost forgot that. I, I meant to bring that up. This is that new program where the cops who arrest you get to pick your prison based on your crime And escort you to it. <laughs> Even in the world of this type of movie, I still don't know if Duke's punishment is enough. Obviously, it's going to be horrible to be raped repeatedly in prison, but... I don't know. I guess you get your bloodthirst going and you're kind of like, well, I kind of wanted you to just kill him in some brutal way. Mm -hmm. It's a little anticlimactic because you have to then mentally picture the rapes that are forthcoming for two. Well, Crow is finally like, well, I am a cop. I do need to try to like close a case here and there. (laughs) But he just killed Levon. I know. (laughs) And seemingly faced no consequences. He wasted the kill. I like how Eddie says. What should we do with his shoes? And Crow just throws the shoe on the ground. Yeah, like, yeah. He's like, I doesn't, doesn't care. Cares. Yeah. We're going to be bragging about how we did this. I know. This. <laughs> it is funny. It's like, so how did that man come to fall to the pool with his shoes still on the balcony? <laughs> he ran at us and we ducked. Yeah. It was so weird. Went flying out of his shoes. <laughs> There's not even a whiff of a follow-up of investigation into that death. (laughs) It was fine. (laughs) Oh, God. That's your movie, folks. Kanjite, Forbidden Subjects. A movie that you could imagine seeing alone 
in a trench coat at midnight in some really shady theater downtown. I, I feel know. like that's the only theater that would carry something like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are your overall thoughts? This was your first time watching this, correct? Yeah. I mean, it's a masterpiece. <laughs> it's a sleaze masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> I actually picked up the Blu-ray from all of films. Yeah, it looks cool. I needed to have it. <laughs> it's got a cool cover. I don't know. Anytime there's something like this where there's a little bit of buildup, it always seems less than what it's been built up to be. Oh, you feel like I build it up to be too much? No, not you. Well, I only know about it from you, but you telling me about the Tarantino thing and yeah. Edgar Wright and them kind of going on at length about it. Yeah, I just think that it's so different from your standard Hollywood morality. Totally. Absolutely. Canon Films, which is the studio that did this, they were, did a lot of movies with Bronson that were like this. All the Most of those ones I listed, probably. Yeah. And it's hard to explain. I guess they were still big enough to get them into theaters. It wasn't direct-to-video or anything, but it kind of still has that vibe, though. I know. I think that listing $3.4 million at the box office is not telling the full story, unless that is including rentals, because I feel like these movies were sort of made for that niche more. That's what it feels like. Because everyone associates that with horror. It wasn't but- taking the country by storm. Other than horror, I would say the other genre that registers in that straight-to-VOD, straight-to-video of yesteryear market is action. Mm-hmm. True. Unfortunately, we found out what was going on with Bruce Willis after all this time, but he's not the only one. There's a lot of those other guys, too, that were doing a lot of straight-to-video action stuff, and the fact that it's so prevalent, go on voodoo or amazon and look under new releases and you'll see what i'm talking about makes me think that there are people watching them oh yeah there must be because why would they keep doing it they're not free to make so yeah there is still a little bit of a world in 2023 where charles bronson sort of exists i don't think they're really doing movies this explicitly xenophobic i don't think so on any scale devoid of all humanity but yeah it is unique it's a unique film (laughs) in that way i'm not really sure what to make of bronson i get the ironic appeal the funny sort of emotionless delivery and the fact that he's shooting people people in the head as an old man and all these different things i don't know i guess it varies from movie to movie because this movie he does seem completely checked out i know but like I said, I think in the at least the first two Death Wish films, he's still kind of was emoting on screen. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. What's he like in 10 to Midnight? I know we both saw that one. Closer to this, but not this. Yeah, that was probably about like six years earlier yeah. or something. Check it out on Tubi, which is the only streaming service that could possibly ever have Contente totally. now. <laughs> now that it's not on Amazon. All right, let's get into segments. I think we're going to briefly touch on all three, but... First up with recommendations, Matt and I had a little bit of a throwback style yeah. affair yesterday. We watched oh. a couple movies together, which we haven't done in a while. Just for fun. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. One of which was... The 2005 
remake of House of Wax, mm-hmm. which I think we briefly mentioned not that long ago That's because so I had just gotten yeah. the Blu-ray. But we decided to watch it together, and I decided to go ahead and recommend it, which, where is it streaming? Tubi. Oh, yep, there you go. I don't know what people's familiarity with the film is. It was sort of successful. It, it made $70 million, which was pretty big, I guess. Yeah, wow. But I, it's a movie that I don't really remember people talking about very much. It was right in the heart of the horror remake era. Yeah. 2005, so in between Texas Chainsaw Massacre and some of the earlier ones, and then Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, so like right in there. It stars Alicia Cuthbert, Chad Michael Murray, and Paris Hilton, among others. Right. And I think its reputation is mostly negative, but uh, yeah. I think it's gotten a little bit of an online following now because people are probably seeing it for the first time or revisiting it and realizing that by today's standards, it's pretty enjoyable. Yeah. You're not going to see movies like this with a $40 million budget anymore. Crazy. I cannot believe it. Or a movie like this make this much of a profit. Well, I was thinking that when you factor in all the marketing expenses, yeah. it's probably not like a huge okay. profit. But yeah, 70 just even million, that number, though, though, that, 70 yeah. million is pretty big right for a movie like this it had me just reminded of this time period and seeing all of these horror movies there was a big horror run during this this yeah. time and i would say that this one's probably on the better half and that's yeah. what really what it feels like to revisit it now because i hadn't seen it since the theater until i watched it last year which is what made me buy the blu-ray and i gotta say it was better than expected totally it was better than yeah. you would think had a good time with it again. The effects are better than you would expect. Yeah, the budget shows. Yeah. Like it looks good. The gross out moments are gross. Right. It sort of plays in the same sandbox as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Taurus Trap. Almost twenty X. years later, both of us can remember the audience reactions to specifically Paris Hilton. Yeah. It was a thing to cheer when yeah. Paris Hilton gets killed in the movie because she was at sort of the peak of her fame which a lot of people found obnoxious Mm -hmm. for you younger people she's definitely the precursor to the kardashians who have taken it to the oh yeah far the next level but she was like the earlier version of it and people mostly didn't like her i guess but yeah that was funny it was weird to have the audience cheer like that so yeah check it out on tubi if you haven't seen it if you like horror movies and you always thought oh man that one sucks i've always heard it sucks that kind of a thing i think it's a little underrated yeah Next up, we will read a brief email. All right. All right. All right, you go ahead. You go ahead. You keep it secret. But you remember this. When you control the mail, you control information. I'm such an idiot. I was tapping on the email logo, and yeah. it wasn't working. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? My whole screen is acting weird. And I realized I was pushing on a screenshot of my menu, of like my phone. <laughs> It was a picture that was touching. Wow, that's awesome. Today's email starts, Hi, Matt and Zach. Don't know if I love Matt's name going first. Hmm. (laughs) I'm kidding. I've been listening to y'all for a while now and really love your show. Thank y'all for the hours of content, which has been the deeply pleasant soundtrack for my many long drives I've taken. So how much does it cost to request a movie for an episode? Is this a joke? Please, your fan... Big Al Mason. <laughs> uh, are you kidding me? Oh, is, is, is this whole thing just to like 
show up Lindsay that no matter how many times you explain this stuff, somebody's going to ask the question? Yes. I do. <laughs> no, I think I am vindicated in how often I repeat the information yeah. because people don't listen to every episode or every time, and we don't talk about it every yeah. episode. Right. So we'll answer it here on air, even though I did reply to Big Al's awesome. email. Thanks for the question, though. Listener requests. We have worked our way into November, but we still have a couple of slots left for this year if you are interested. They do cost money now. For a listener request up to two hours and ten minutes, it is $50 for three hours, up to three hours, 75. We accept predominantly Cash App, although we can sort of work with you. If need be, you can reach us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at greatestpod. That's how it works. So thanks to Al for the support. Thanks for listening. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to explain it again, (laughs) which Matt loves. Totally. And finally, Physical Media Spotlight, the new segment, Taking the World by Storm. Mm -hmm. She's never seen a single Paul Walker movie. That's a huge oh-no-no. She also doesn't care about Blu-ray. She's a monster. We've gotten emails from Amazon, Blu-ray sales through the roof since we started this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do this little box set that I just got in the mail yesterday from Arrow Video. It's called Enter the Video Store, Empire of Screams. Now, I'm going to give you some pretty honest-to-goodness marketing on this little item. Essentially, what this is is a box set of a few movies that are all in the MGM window that Arrow clearly didn't think would sell well enough on their own. So they've put them together in a nice little box set. They're sort of your second, third, fourth tier horror movies. Not really particularly big names or anything. The Dungeon Master, Dolls, Cellar Dweller, Arena, Robot Jocks. I've actually heard of a few of these films and and seen one, which is Dolls, and it really isn't even that good, but mm-hmm. I bought this box set anyway. But, A, I love the packaging. I think a lot of the people who collect physical media get suckered into this stuff, but it's fun. It's fun to display it, and it looks cool. And I don't know why Arrow hasn't done more of this. Uh, Yeah. Because there's a lot of that B and C tier titles. B and C for them. Right. Obviously, for other companies, these would be even lower tiers. But, you know, they might not sell super well, and if you dabble in, like, oh, this one has a cult following that's pretty small, but if we put it with two others that have cult followings, then we might be able to have something with this. Yeah. I think it's a cool idea. I, I like so the too. box set. I actually am probably going to try to watch these movies I feel like soon. it would be a good idea for Kino to do this type of thing with some of their titles. Although they I think got... they do some box sets, yeah. but yeah, I think you'd have to have a theme. They I don't have... think they just want to stick a bunch of No, I know, but together. I think they could come up with a theme. They've got marks like me that just buy every single one off so they don't need to yeah i love those imprint neo-noir yeah box sets and yeah sometimes doing a box set not just one director but over like a like a, a genre right. or something like that is pretty cool and it helps expose you to a couple of yeah. other movies you might not know things like that so check that out if you're into blu-rays arrow video the new box set looks pretty cool i'm gonna try to dive into those movies this week Thank you so much for listening. One Trashy Summer rolls on. We'll be back shortly with another big episode, and I'm very excited for it. Totally. It's a huge one. Also currently streaming on Tubi. (laughs) 
one of the my most anticipated ones in a while. All I've right. been wanting to do this for about a year. So I'm excited. Check that out soon. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a new rating and review on Apple Podcasts when you get a chance. We really appreciate stuff like that. Please send us an email, questions, comments, concerns, whatever you'd like, greatestpod at gmail.com. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Talk to you soon.
crow with one bullet. (laughs) (laughs) This is so insane. Oh god, I'm gonna have to cut some of this out. It's too much. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm gonna be able to get past one. Should I cut this out and use it as the ending clip? I don't know. I feel like you have to leave some of it. Well, I'm going to leave some of it, yeah. but I can't, I can't leave all of it. I know. It's too much. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of see, at one point, the crane was 50 feet in the air, and then <laughs> there is, like, a frame of a shot, like, one frame where it seems like the crane is now ground level in a circle. <laughs> yeah. And he just kind of hops off. And yeah. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> they didn't know what to do. I think you actually probably nailed it. They just were like, I don't we know. We want to do this set piece, but we don't know how to get out of it. Well, they probably wrote it like, oh, we'll have him slide down the crane or something. Yeah. And they're like, A, no one would ever believe that. B, we're not film. How would we film that? We don't have that kind of budget. <laughs> 